0: Change the theme so something we all know um, and we deal with every day um, there's change from morning and midday into night but what I've written is perhaps concerned with a change that occurs on a larger time scale um, not over the days or not over the course of days or weeks but over the course of a generation we're different to our parents and they in turn were different to theirs and the values and forms of society are constantly being remade Often we can feel that societal change does not occur rapidly enough. Other times, society can morph from what we understood it to be into something else faster than we can realise or keep up with. So this story is set in the fictional town of Holborn. It's in regional Victoria. Um, it's a town that prostrated due to coal mining and processing. It's written from the perspective of a university student called Gabe, um, who's following around a couple and they're on the Meals and Wheels round. They're going to be delivering food to some vulnerable residents in the area. Um, A couple are called Craig and Julie. So I'm telling you this because I'm trying to keep it brief, but that's not something I'm good at. Um, So I'm going to start halfway through the story. Um, So, so far in the story, uh, they've done a few deliveries in Craig. (laughs) I know, it's pretty ridiculous, isn't it? Craig's been pointing out some of the more attractive local landmarks and recounting the history of the town's glory days during the mining boom. We'll pick up from there. All right. We continued to drive out of town and it soon left the regular grid of houses behind. We passed through farmland to the edge of the valley, then into the forest. The wide concrete road became a dirt track that wound and climbed through the foothills. Below the road, steeply falling to one side, lay a gully whose riverbed was sheltered by the fanned leaves of fern trees. We followed its course deeper into the bush of the backcountry as Craig continued the story of Holborn. A good many people had moved into the town and set up their lives there, he said. There were children who had been born in the town hospital, which had been built to accommodate the growing population, who had then grown up and begun working in the mines themselves. They had lived there their whole lives. Holborn was all that they had known, and the town life revolved around the coal plant. At one point, more than a third of the town was employed in the mines, and the other two-thirds of the town did the other jobs They <laughs> relied on the, on the miners being there. Craig said that he had never worked in the mines. He'd been an electrician, and his job had been to put up the power lines for all the new houses. And Julie, he said, looking over at her, I was a teacher, Julie said. I'm retired now, though. I asked her which grade she taught, wishing to hear her speak more. Primary school, she replied, looking back at me in the mirror for the first time. Mainly years two and three, I found that kids at that age were the most interested in what you had to teach them. I said that I could very clearly picture all my primary school teachers, yet that I'd already forgotten most of my high school teachers. She said that this was true for a lot of people and seemed to smile from behind her glasses. But 10 years ago now, When they announced that they were going to shut the factories down, there's no more work for anyone, resumed Craig, looking across at Julie for confirmation. The smile vanished from her face and she nodded gravely. There had been five plants at the height of coal production. This number had dwindled to two over the next five years. Now there was only one remaining, the original largest plant on the outskirts of town. It wasn't just the miners who were out of a job, it was anyone who had relied on the coal mines to bring the business of daily life to the area teachers, engineers, builders and bar managers, all out of work. He himself had turned up to work one day and had been told that there were no more power lines to put up since there were no new houses and roads being built and he was out of a job. A similar thing had happened to half the people they knew. Just like that, the growth of the town had slowed to a halt. New faces had stopped moving into the area and the town had begun the slow process of wheeling backwards of folding in on itself. We rounded a corner and emerged from the shade of the gum trees into a grass paddock. Our view now unobscured, I could see that we were at the highest point of the hill that rose behind the town and it had been cleared for grazing along its ridge. Craig told me that we were approaching the house of their final customers, the Blackburns. They always left this house until last because it was so far from the rest of the town, making access difficult. In fact, it was technically out of the jurisdiction of Holborn Mills and Wheels. But since the couple who lived in this house were one of the oldest families in the district, and most of the service's organisers could remember them from their childhood days, they were considered to be above bureaucratic laws and boundaries. We turned off the track and into the driveway that led to a house perched on top of the hill. It was white and grand and fields fell away from it in all directions. The facade was decorated with carved fretwork and pointed finials, which reminded me of the costumes worn in images of medieval courts and surrounding the house on both sides were orchards of orange trees, the green foliage studded with rich orange fruit. We came to a stop in their driveway. This time both Craig and Julie exiting the car, and following Craig's lead, we walked along a gravel path that led to the side door. As we passed through the orchard, I saw that the branches were heavy with fruit, bowing under the weight of the oranges, which were ripe and ready to be picked, and that on the ground forming a ring around the tree, the ones that had fallen and were now rotting and becoming blue with mould in the long grass. There's no point knocking, Craig said to me, slipping off his boots by standing on the heels. They won't hear it anyway. (laughs) Thanks, Claude. (laughs) Um, Robert's deaf and Hazel's hearing is only a little better, but her eyesight's worse. The door had been unlocked. Craig opened it and entered. Julie and I followed him inside. I saw that we'd entered their kitchen I did not experience a sense of intrusion that normally attends entering into the private space of a stranger. The bench top was bare, unlike Jack's, as was the pantry, and it lacked the aroma that kitchens take on after years of use, having instead the vacant scentlessness of a hotel kitchenette. Without first alerting the house owners to their presence, Craig and Julie opened the fridge and began to unpack it of the old containers and restock it with fresh ones. About half-eaten, Craig said to Julie, about the pile of old containers, some of them still containing meals that seemed untouched, while others had been partially picked up. That's an improvement on last week, Julie replied as she put the last of the meals in the fridge. She strained to stand up under her own weight from her kneeling position and, closing the fridge door, looked past me to the corner of the room and said, Oh, good afternoon, Hazel. (laughs) Twist. I looked over my shoulder to see an elderly woman standing in the doorway and grinning at Julie, unsure of how long she had been watching us. She was primly dressed in a brown skirt and cardigan and had a halo of white hair that gradually faded into the air around it as it radiated outwards, like smoke. She looked at us in turn with a mild grin as if bemused by our sudden apparition in her kitchen. When she turned her head to me, I saw that her pupils were milky and slightly askew so that she seemed to be looking at the space just above my left shoulder. Craig introduced me as the student who was following them on the rounds. How do you do? Hazel <laughs> said in an airy voice, seemingly addressing my left shoulder, and offered me her hand. I crossed the kitchen to take it, saying that I was well, that she had a beautiful house and I especially loved the orchard. She inclined her head and pursed her lips in response. Then, with her hand still limply and close in mine, she looked past me and directed attention back at Julie, regaining a ben- benign smile. I released her hand, which drifted back to passively clutch the other in front of her belly. And how are things, Hazel? Craig boomed across the kitchen. Again, Hazel merely nodded in response without taking her eyes off Julie, mouthing something soundless and indistinct. You look well, Julie said to her. We best check on Robert, Craig said in normal volume and he slipped past Hazel and through the door behind her. The adjacent room was long, open and flooded with natural light, which came in through the wide windows lining the far wall. It had high ceilings and was largely empty, apart from a dining table that looked to be able to seat a dozen people, and a recliner chair, which had been placed squarely in front of the windows. Craig walked the length of the room and came in front of the chair. In it sat a man who must have been Robert. He was wearing an old, oversized suit in which the shapes of his limbs were lost, and he was staring out on the bright valleys below. Craig waved at him to get his attention. The man raised his long white fingers off the armrest, then let them drop back down. He would not look at us directly, appearing to either to be either transfixed by something off in the distance or lost in deep thought. We left the house by the way that we had entered, closing the door behind us. Hazel stood in the kitchen and watched us while we slipped our shoes back on, and before we walked out of sight, she raised a hand to us then shuffled out of the kitchen and returned to the light-filled living room and, I imagined, the silence and a procession of unmarked hours looking out on the empty fields. As we drove back down the driveway, the house receding into the hills, and turned on the road, I asked Craig and Julie what they'd meant by their comment on the Blackburn's leftover food. It's a dreadful thing, but they barely eat the food that we leave for them, said Craig. Some weeks we've done our round and found the meals still out on the bench, where we left them, completely untouched. Really, to mysteries to how they're still alive. You saw yourself how empty their fridge and pantry are. Robbie is starting to look very thin these days, though, he said somberly. <laughs> he somberly added to Julie with a sidelong glance. I asked Craig and Julie if they thought it was safe for the Blackburns to live alone, and if they didn't have any children or family who could care for them. Julie replied that they did have a son, but had, that he had left Holborn to move closer to the city with his family. It seems to me that if something were to go wrong, nobody would find out until it was too late, I said. Don't you think that the son has some responsibility to care for his parents? Craig lifted his head and glared at me in the rear mirror. Don't you think that he wants to? Craig replied angrily. This is what I've been talking about. He had no choice but to leave his parents. He was living just down the road up until about six years ago, but guess where he worked? As a machine operator in the coal plant and both he and his wife lost their jobs within six months of each other. They had two young children, both in primary school. How are they supposed to support their children without a job? And they had a mortgage, and they had to pay bills. What's their responsibility to their children in that situation, or to each other? And how are you supposed to balance that up against your responsibility to your parents, who would rather die than leave the family home that they spent half their lives paying off? There's no way to satisfy anyone in that situation. Be trapped, and I think that the son and his wife made the right decision for their children. I told Craig that I had no doubt that the son had done the right thing, but he seemed too overwhelmed to hear me. He turned his head every few seconds to look out the side window, and I could see that he was clenching his jaw in what I thought was an effort to restrain himself from saying any more and risk opening the floodgates. We drove for a minute in silence, and I watched the gum trees glide past outside my window. For the first time that day, the sunlight broke through the cloud cover. The muted colours of the gum forest sprung to life, there was a sense of something uniform dividing into many different parts. From what had seemed like a brown-green wash materialised trees, bushes, sounds. Shadows appeared along the ground, dividing the forest floor into dark and light strips, and with a new sense of depth I could sense the space between each tree and just how far into the distance the forest extended. Julia was first to speak. Lots of people were affected in the same way as the Blackburns were. Just about every family has had someone move away to find work, ours being no exception to the rule. Our daughter had to move an hour away to get a job in the kitchen. She doesn't even like food. <laughs> she does like food, said Craig, sounding as though he'd calmed down. You're right, she likes eating food, she's not cooking it." A big laugh. <laughs> We're well, hoping that she'll come back one day, Julie said. If she wants to, that is, she added. Craig nodded. Hopefully she can come back and settle down here once this rough patch is over. In the meantime, we, we feel that it's our duty to keep the community strong. She looked over at Craig as if indicating to him his cue. Yes, that's right, he said, continuing on, for Ju- continuing on from Julie. We've been doing the Meals on Wheels twice a week and running the shuttle bus for lawn bowls on Fridays. We're also part of Neighbourhood Watch, mainly trying to keep kids from getting caught up in vandalism and drugs. (laughs) (laughs) I could call a few people out, but (laughs) There's been a bit of that. What Julie and I have realised is that we're gonna have to stick together as a community if we're gonna pull through until the government finally understands that they've got to open up a new plant. I asked him with surprise if he really thought that the government was ever going to open up a new coal plant, given that the media discussion nowadays was centred around the transition away from coal. I understand that some people in the city are worried about the effects on the environment and the climate and things like that, but what they don't understand is that people's lives are at stake here. This isn't just a hypothetical for us. Our whole lives have been affected and the only way that they'll be back as they were is if they open a new plant. One thing I always ask people is, if you were going to evict someone from their house, chuck them out onto the street, then wouldn't you build them a new house first? And so wouldn't you build a new plant before you shut the old one down? Or do you not think that we deserve to have a house to live in? There was an element of challenge in Craig's gaze as he looked at me in the mirror. I agreed that, at the very least, everyone deserved to have a home. The car slowed down and came to a halt next to a section of cleared trees. In the distance Holborn was visible. Craig said that we had taken a slightly longer but more scenic route to get back to town so that they could show me this view. We wanted to leave you with a good impression of the town. Who knows, maybe you'll think about coming back one day. You could get a job in the hospital. I know that they need. A few nutritionists around here, he joked, patting his gut. <laughs> it's a good place to set up a family too. Pretty ideal, really, he said, looking over at Julie. Yep, she confirmed. We like it here. I said that that was kind of them and that I would definitely consider it, though there had been something aut- automatic in Craig's tone during the closing address which indicated he was reciting a line that he recited to scores of students before me. The couple looked out from their place in the front seat and I looked at them and the panorama of the landscape from my position behind. The highway cut through the narrow valley cleanly down its middle, as if with a scalpel, and gathered around it was the flat grey blotch of the town. Behind the town loomed the coal plant, only two of its eight smokestacks smouldering, a heavy cloud hanging motionlessly above it and beyond that I now saw the murky brown bowl of earth of the open-cut mine. From its furthest point, far in the distance, where the cross-section of a half-consumed mountain was exposed, it crept around the valley and up to the outskirts of the city, falling just shy of the outermost houses. Two earth movers were visible as slowly moving specks, one emerging to the surface to sprinkle aside its load, the other at the hole's rim, preparing to descend again. And with each load removed, the sky rushed in to press, press up against its new margins, and the hole widened, yawning, opening, expanding into somewhere where something was no longer, like so much indifference, a blank spot on the map, brimming with nothing and deep enough to bury the town hall. Thank you.